Well, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of the morning on February 22nd from my apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, I am here in this podcast to rain on a parade, a parade called Perseverance. There's been this big media to-do over the past few days about the um, successful landing on Mars of NASA's Perseverance rover, which is going to actually be, uh, you know, a little um, autonomous robot that's going to go around the landscape and collect samples, and they're going to supposedly try to figure out if there was ever life on Mars, as if it matters. And the media coverage has, you know, all been uniformly celebratory. And, you know, every time they, meaning NASA or its equivalents in the European Space Agency and the Indian Space Agency and even the United Arab Emirates last year actually succeeded in sending um, some kind of probe to Mars, Uh, notoriously China sent a probe to the dark side of the moon last year. Every time, you know, uh, it's it's all portrayed as, quote-unquote, progress. And we're all supposed to go, whoopee, and we're all supposed to celebrate. And it gets all of this relentless media coverage, especially, you know, if you're in the United States and it's NASA, which, um, you know, actually succeeded in getting their probe up to Mars. And I suppose there's, you know, equivalent, uh, you know, special hoopla if you're in the United Arab Emirates when they get their probe up to Mars. Meanwhile, here is another story which is getting very little coverage, which concerns that of the Afro-Brazilian peasants in Brazil's largely impoverished and marginalized northeastern state of Maranao, who are being forcibly relocated from their ancestral lands to make way for an expansion of the Alcantara Satellite Launch Center, if I am pronouncing it correctly. I'm going to read a little bit um, from an account a couple of days ago on a Public Radio International. One of the few reports which have been written in English about this absolutely disgraceful situation. Back in the 1980s, in the final years of Brazil's military dictatorship, hundreds of black families were removed from their land to make way for the construction of the Alcantara Satellite Launch Center. The families were relocated to agrovillas, or agricultural villages, where the government promised they would receive food, support, and compensation. Ultimately, surprise, surprise, they received little help, according to community members. And these agrovillas, of course, are, you know, akin to, uh, you know, the strategic hamlets that the U.S. established in Vietnam and the uh, so-called model villages that uh, the military dictatorship in Guatemala established to relocate um, the rebellious peasantry to under military control in the 1980s. And similarly, the uh, so-called ironically named, very ironically named, socialist villages that uh, Tibetan nomads are being forcibly relocated to by the the Chinese state 
currently. Maybe conditions aren't uh, quite as bad in these uh, agrovillas. Maybe it wasn't quite as, as militarized, but still, this was all established by the Brazilian military dictatorship, which was quite brutal, even in its um, closing years in the 1980s. Today, hundreds more black families from the region could be evicted to make way for the launch site's expansion as part of a 2019 agreement between Brazil and the United States. The treaty grants the U.S. permission to launch non-military and commercial rockets from Alcântara. The interesting thing here, a dozens of Brazil's 3,000 Quilombo communities, Brazilians of African descent, surround the Alcantara launch site. All right, I'm going to throw in a little bit of historical background. Uh, the Quilombos, for those of you who don't know, were basically autonomous zones, really self-governing republics in the uh, interior of Brazil, which were um, established by escaped slaves during the colonial and immediate post-colonial period before slavery was abolished in uh, Brazil as late as 1888. Self-governing communities, you know, akin to uh, those of um, the Maroons in Jamaica and uh, the so-called Palenques in Colombia, where, you know, they ran off into, into, into the bush and, uh, you know, cleared the jungle and established, uh, you know, self-governing communities out there, um, self-governing uh, semi-states, actually, out there, you know, in the jungle, in remote areas of the country, and preserved their, uh, you know, African languages and traditions and so on. And uh, finally, as, you know, civilization, so-called, <clears throat> you know, encroached upon these quilombos, they had to fight to, to keep them and to actually get them titled to them and to actually win their land rights. And there's been a whole process in, in, in Brazil over the past generations, along with, uh, you know, the indigenous peoples uh, of, the, of the Amazon and the interior of Brazil, getting their lands titled to them, getting their territories or traditional territories titled to them. So have uh, the Afro-Brazilians in their quilombos. So, uh, you know, there's a real you know, heroic history here, which, uh, you know, of, of lands being liberated and fought for and cultural traditions surviving in defiance of the slave system, which is now, you know, being threatened and wiped out through forcible relocation at the hands of the state to make way for a damn satellite launch site with the direct complicity of the United States. Roughly 800 families are now scheduled to be removed to make way for the launch site's expansion, though their removal is on hold in part due to the coronavirus pandemic. All right, so, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus pandemic is actually giving us a little window of opportunity here to try to kick up a fuss and um, bring some sorely needed attention to this disgraceful situation and, uh, you know, petition for uh, the right to survival of the uh, Quilombo communities of, of Alcantara in the Brazilian state of Maranao. And, uh, you know, I take my hat off to uh, Public Radio International for actually giving the story some coverage. One of the few accounts that I've seen in English. But the, uh, you know, the basic consensus position of the world media and those of us who are, you know, all like, you know, slack-jawed and gaga at the whole media spectacle of these, you know, moonshots and Martian shots, which are, which are going off every few months, 
seems to be, you know, stated implicitly, but I'm going to put it into um, in, into straight talk here. You know, it's, it's actually it's not even it's 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 not even stated. It's merely implicit. It's it's unstated. But I'm going to uh, I'm going to articulate this unspoken attitude, which is fuck these people. They're standing in the way of progress. Because, of course, we have to go on forever putting hundreds and thousands of satellites into the sky, and anybody who dissents is a reactionary Luddite. That is the unspoken position. All right, now you take that story and you put it together with this one, which I'm about to read a little bit of, from uh, Science Alert website, October of last year. Earth's space debris problem is getting worse. And there is an explosive component. Before humans started sending objects into Earth orbit, the pocket of space around our planet was clear and clean. But the launch of Sputnik 1 in October of 1957 changed everything. Since then, the space debris has been accumulating, with the amount of useless, defunct satellites vastly outnumbering the operational objects in our orbit. A new annual report from the European Space Agency has found that while we have become aware of the problem and taken steps in recent years to mitigate it, those steps are currently not keeping up with the sheer scale of space junk. All spacefaring nations have contributed to the problem, which is significant, as more and more defunct objects populate near-Earth space the risk of collision rises, which, as objects crash and shatter, produces even more space debris. Oh, my God. Talk about a vicious cycle. The hazards have been prominent in the last year. We have not only watched as two large dead satellites very nearly collided, but the International Space Station has had to undertake emergency maneuvers three times to avoid colliding with space debris. But collisions are not even close to being the biggest problem, according to the ESA's report, European Space Agency. In the last 10 years, collisions were responsible for just 0.83% of all fragmentation events. Quote, the biggest contributor to the current space debris problem is explosions in orbit caused by leftover energy, fuel, and batteries on board spacecraft and rockets. End quote, said Holger Crag, head of the ESA's space safety program. Quote, despite measures being in place for years to prevent this, we see no decline in the number of such events. Trends toward end-of-mission disposal are improving, but at a slow pace, end quote. According to the ESA's statistical model, there are over 130 million pieces of anthropogenic space debris smaller than a millimeter. The only way we can hope to do anything about the problem is by working together. (laughs) I don't know what the hell they're going to do about that problem. I mean, it's unbelievable. Here we are, you know, trashing the earth, and we've got, you know, this virtual continent of floating plastic in the Pacific Ocean, and now we're doing the same thing in space. And most people aren't even aware of it. According to the uh, information I have been able to glean online, there are currently approximately 6,000 satellites circling the Earth, about 60% of which 
are defunct. Space junk, quote-unquote, just abandoned up there. And, you know, along with this notion that, you know, the economy has got to expand indefinitely and the GDP has got to grow every year, et cetera, et cetera, you know, people just take it for granted that we have to keep putting more and more satellites into orbit every year, mostly now for uh, purposes of, uh, you know, facilitating communications and getting the entire planet hooked up to the Internet. And we're just in, you know, the first embryonic stages of beginning to, uh, you know, extend this reach beyond, you know, the Earth's immediate orbit to, uh, you know, the moon and ultimately to Mars and, uh, and the other planets. It's all so utterly, utterly dystopian. And the, the, the vast sums of money which are being spent on this. And meanwhile, what's happening here on Earth? What's happening right here in uh, New York State, where I'm ranting from? Here's a... Uh, a report last April, just when we were at the very worst of the uh, coronavirus crisis here in New York, from LowHUD.com. That stands for Lower Hudson. It's the uh, Gannett paper for uh, Lower Hudson Valley. Dozens of New York's hospitals closed, reads the headline. Then COVID-19 hit. Now marginalized patients are dying. Here's why. In November 2016, after New York's health system cut thousands of hospital beds in search of cost savings and efficiencies over the prior decade, efficiencies being a loaded word if I ever heard one, policy experts warned of disproportionate harm to marginalized patients. The key lightning rod was the Commission on Healthcare Facilities in the 21st century, known as the Burger Commission, a government effort that contributed to hospital closures and a 20% reduction in beds statewide. Quote, the patients at these hospitals that are being closed tend to be uninsured, tend to be racial and ethnic minorities, maybe undocumented, said Elizabeth Benjamin, the Community Services Society health policy expert. Speaking at a prominent panel discussion at the time, meaning when the Burger Commission came out in 2016, she asked, how are those patients' needs going to be met? Her question, it seems, has been answered. The novel coronavirus has devastated communities of color, infecting and killing Black and Hispanic people at an alarming rate as authorities have scrambled to plug gaping holes in New York's medical infrastructure. Quote, we're watching a pandemic-induced disaster because we weren't ready, said Benjamin on Wednesday in an interview with USA Today's Network New York, Wednesday being a Wednesday back in April of last year. So while it seems like practically every damn country on Earth, even, you know, so-called developing countries like India, are throwing crap at Mars, this is what, you know, us commoners are having to contend with down here on terra firma. And, you know, I'm reminded, and I just get so much crap every time I voice these opinions, you know, being baited endlessly as a Luddite and a primitivist, blah, blah, blah. For, to me, just saying what is glaringly obvious. And every time, you know, I just feel so vindicated when I remember Gil Scott Heron's wry reaction to the 1969 moon landing with his classic song, Whitey on the Moon. If you haven't heard it, 
Google it up. Boy, did he nail that one. And the problem here is that we're all so indoctrinated in the uh, cult of progress that even so-called progressives cannot see the contradiction. And this gets to the dual meaning of the word progress. You know, you've got technological progress. And once again, that's <laughs> even more of a loaded phrase than efficiency. And then you've got social progress. And this contradiction goes to the roots of, you know, the 19th century progressive movement, you know, the capital P progressive movement, you know, the progressive party and Teddy Roosevelt and all that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the racist and elitist suppositions of the 19th century progressives have been rejected by contemporary small p progressives. But we have not, for the most part, made the next step of, of questioning the dangerous conflation of technological and social progress, which was also kind of, you know, a founding tenet of the 19th century progressive movement. And we have, you know, for the most part, not started to even question whose interests are being served by so-called technological progress and whether technological progress, at least as currently conceived, is not inimical to social progress. I use the word questioning because, you know, I'm not a complete dogmatist here. I'm trying to start a discussion rather than propounding prescriptions. And, you know, I mean, I'm as curious as the next guy about the whole question of what the planetary evolution of Mars has been and whether, you know, it's possible that there was ever life up there, which, frankly, I doubt very, very, very much. And, you know, the really interesting question is whether, ultimately, there's anything that we can learn about Earth's evolution by way of comparison with Mars. Anything we can learn about Earth's evolution which would um which could possibly be applied to trying to, you know, resolve the dilemmas of global warming and climate catastrophe, which we are facing at the moment. But I have to caution every government on Earth is a capitalist government, you know, with the possible exception of Cuba. <laughs> Every government on Earth is a capitalist government. And it just maddens me that people who consider themselves to be progressive and are basically progressive in most of their thinking can just throw any critique of the government that we suffer under out the window and its intentions out the window when we're all supposed to be slack-jawed and gaga over all this space bullshit. The last probe uh, that NASA sent to Mars, or one of the last, uh, a couple of years ago was the MAVEN, M-A-V-E-N, which stood for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Probe. And that mission was, quote, about understanding the history of the climate on Mars, and quote, according to the NASA website. But posing it in such neutral and apolitical terms is patently dishonest and dodges the question of Toward what aim? Toward what aim are we trying to understand the history of climate on Mars? And, you know, all the media accounts fail to note 
that Halliburton has actually drawn up plans for mining operations on Mars. Yes, really. Go to my website, countervortex.org. It is documented. And, you know, we've all seen these movies like Total Recall, and I'm talking about the original one with Schwarzenegger back in the 80s, not the remake, which I didn't see, which I understand doesn't have the Mars angle. But, you know, the original Total Recall, great movie, you know, with its uh, dystopian uh, depiction of oppressive mining colonies on Mars. Well, you know, the whole point, hopefully, of dystopian fiction is to serve as a warning. So, why aren't we heeding the warning? All right, unless, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt, I'm sure that <clears throat> whatever agendas Halliburton may have, and in fact does have, you know, there are people, uh, you know, in NASA, of course, who are, you know, well, good intentioned and are actually interested in knowledge for its own sake and also, you know, hopefully interested in applying knowledge to social good. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Our two closest neighbor planets, Mars and Venus, they're both dead planets. No life, presumably. <laughs> I think now it's safe to say there's no life. Maybe in the past there was life on Mars, although I'm totally from Missouri on that question. But certainly now we can say there isn't any life on either Mars or Venus. They're both dead planets, and they provide, you know, a, a, a depiction of what Earth could look like if the very system that allowed us to send that evil little probe up to Mars continues on its merry way for another few generations and continues to destroy the biosphere. Thank you very much. You know, that's the ultimate irony of it. And it's interesting. In Mars, they think, you know, there, there's a very thin atmosphere because it was all blown away by the solar wind over the millennia, which Wikipedia informs me is the stream of charged particles released from the upper atmosphere of the sun called the corona. And the reason that, uh, you know, Earth's atmosphere has not been blown away by the solar wind is because we have an electromagnetic field which protects us from the solar wind, and Mars presumably did not. So thank you very mu much, Mother Earth, for providing us with an electromagnetic field. And it's believed that, you know, the water also, you know, as it uh, evaporated into the atmosphere, was you know blown away bit by bit by the solar wind over the centuries, which is why there is no longer as much water on Mars as they think that there was in the past. There's still a there's still polar ice caps on Mars, so there is still some water up there. Venus, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. Venus is a planet where, you know, the so-called greenhouse effect has gone whole hog, that it has an extremely thick atmosphere, resulting in, you know, surface temperatures which are way, way, way too high, you know, to support life, in addition to being closer to the sun, it's due to atmospheric conditions. <clears throat> that the temperatures up there on Venus are too high to support life. So, uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, there might be some useful things to be gleaned from these probes, I, I guess. I'm not sure if on balance it's worth it. <clears throat> but there might be some useful things to be gleaned which we could apply to trying to, you know, get a better understanding of what we, and by we I mean industrial civilization, the human system, as it were, is doing to our own biosphere, our own planet down here on Earth. 
And, you know, similarly, uh, you know, there are satellites which are in orbit around the Earth, which are monitoring the Earth to learn more about climate. And, uh, you know, certainly that's good. You know, I don't equivocate on that. That's good. But let's keep in mind that, you know, there are also satellites which are, uh, you know, in orbit around the Earth to um, allow uh, multinational corporations to scan the floor of the Amazon rainforest for mineral deposits to exploit. Let's not forget about that. So, you know, I am not necessarily calling for a complete, total, ruthless abolition of the space program. Necessarily. (laughs) And I'm not necessarily calling for a complete 100% moratorium on sending up any more satellites. Necessarily. Not necessarily. (laughs) Still thinking this one through. But I am saying this, that the whole Leviathan of so-called space exploration, quote-unquote, yet another loaded phrase, and the attendant, you know, network of um, private launch facilities to put satellites into orbit, etc., all of that infrastructure needs to be dramatically scaled back. That, I am definitely saying. At the very least, it needs to be dramatically scaled back. And the notion that we can go on putting more satellites into orbit each year and getting every inch of the Earth hooked up to the World Wide Web, the notion that you know that is good and inevitable has got to urgently be called into question. Now, of course, I recognize that exclusion from the web means exclusion from the economy and information as things are currently constituted. And that's why we have to change the way things are currently constituted. Thank you very much. So please, don't believe the hype, including the space hype. And if there are any little green men up on Mars, I hope they sabotage that Perseverance probe, but good. Yankee, go home. U.S. robo-imperialism hands off Mars. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex, where everything I've been ranting about tonight is online, documented, and hyperlinked. Check us out online at thecountervortex.org. Our website. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.